Revolution. I am Madison Tang, coordinator of the China is Not Our Enemy campaign at Code Pink Women for Peace. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Thank you for tuning in. On this episode, join Code Pink and the China is Not Our Enemy campaign for episode 116, Resisting the U.S. War on China from Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas or the CNMI all the way to India. Hear from Indigenous Chamorro scholars and activists, Dr. Kenneth Cooper and Dr. Issa Ariola, about how the native peoples, land, and environment of Guam and the CNMI are being impacted and harmed by the U.S.'s military buildup in its escalating war on China and beyond. Then, in the second half of the show, hear from Prabir Perkayasla, editor, writer, and activist, who founded NewsClick.in, about the role of India and the U.S.'s war on China as it shores up its alliances. Now on to our segment from the China is Not Our Enemy campaign's recent webinar entitled U.S. Militarization of Guam and the Northern Marianas. In the escalating U.S. hybrid war on China, the U.S. is ramping up militarization of its colonies in the Asia-Pacific, such as Okinawa, Hawaii, Guam, and the Mariana Islands, or the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. This is causing environmental devastation of sacred ancestral coral reefs, limestone forest, seas, air, etc., harm and death through military exercises and accidents, oppression through military rape, crime, and economic deprivation, destruction of ancestral burial grounds, and much more. It is crucial that we center indigenous Pacific Islanders whose safety, sovereignty, dignity, land, and water is being actively endangered by the U.S. military through our United States tax dollars. This is what we can impact as U.S. citizens in the belly of the empire today. You may hear references in this segment to other speakers or to a video that was showed at the beginning of the webinar on U.S. military propaganda about the militarization of the CNMI through the Mariana Islands training and testing area. Now let's hear from Indigenous Chamorro scholars and activists, Dr. Kenneth Cooper and Dr. Issa Ariola. So uh, I'm going to be talking about Guam primarily, and we'll go into why there's a sort of a split, uh, but I'm talking about the, the anatomy of a spear's tip, right? And so I think I should begin by saying that I was at a lavender farm in Maui when my mother called me crying. Uh, it was April of 2013. So between exasperated cries, my mom yelped and pleaded and she said, son, please pray for us. And at the time when I was in Maui, I had no idea what was going on. Um, and she said, they're gonna bomb us. North Korea is gonna bomb us. Um, and she was referring to a threat made by North Korea, saying that their, mess, their missiles could reach the waters surrounding the military bases in the American territory of Guam. 
So 2013, and this really got me thinking, and this led me to wonder why Guam? So my presentation today is really focusing on giving a, a context of why Guam? We hear Guam in these particular contexts of war or potential threats, so why us, okay? Um, and in reference to that video, just real quickly, I know the other speakers will get into this a lot more than, than I will, but uh, here in Guam, we tend to live in a permanent state of mitigation, right? Where it's always finding this mitigation framework that obviously puts a lot of our interests as secondary. So first, to situate Guam, the island, which is a mere 212 square miles, hosts large American military bases. There's Anderson Air Force, which occupies, occupies the northern tip of the island, and Naval Base Guam, which is primarily in the south. There are also scattered installations, okay? But we also see the continuing development of Marine Corps Base Camp Laws. Uh, the military currently occupies around 27% of the island, and the strategic importance of Guam has led to our nicknames, such as the tip of the spear, Fortress Guam, and America's unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Pacific. Um, so why Guam? Uh, Robert Rogers in Destiny's Landfall wrote that Guam in short was destined after Magellan to be a pawn in the realpolitik of foreign powers. And I still think that in many ways we are viewed in this way, right? So what about us? Well, we're closer by 14 hours flight time and five to seven days sea transit time to East Asia than is any other US-based facility. We offer the regions in the Marianas in total, offers the regions live fire bombing range, we have an excellent deep water port with significant room for wharf expansion. We have facilities for the US Air Force. We have large aviation fuel storage depots, and we have a large Pacific weaponry storage, as well as a naval magazine capable of holding considerable conventional nuclear munitions, right? So this is why Guam is such a key piece, and we will see later um, in the presentation in the continuing sort of escalations here in the region. Now, we also constitute what is called the center of the second island chain. Um, so for those of you who know about the island chain strategy, Guam constitutes the second. The first island chain is really, you know, regarding primarily like Taiwan, and then Guam is the center, okay? So Guam will help provide logistical support to the first island chain. A lot of this stems from this man, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who believed in his book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, that America getting a blue water navy would be a great um, sort of boon for the country's expansion and power projection. And in one of his letters, he wrote this, no situation in our possession equals Guam for protecting every security interest in the Pacific, right? Because by basis of operations allow the US to protect commerce during peacetime, and of course be strategically located during wartime. And so we can see that as early on as the early 1900s, obviously, when we were acquired by the United States, this sort of strategic thinking about the island is not new, right? It goes back all the way to mayhem, okay? So what I like to call it is the imperial magic trick, because if you look at depictions of islands in general, we're either or. We're important, right, strategically, but we're also disposable. We are simultaneously both. We are places of exploitation, and we're also places of nothingness, right? And this is encapsulated in this report uh, when they were talking about the acquisition of islands, where the Navy admirals, one of them said, none of the islands in question possess natural features of values other than the military standpoint. And thus, acquiring these islands should not constitute territorial aggrandizement because they don't have any economic value. So it's our, that's the imperial magic trick. Are we unimportant and useless 
or are we extremely important? And I think it's both at the same time in different perspectives and it allows a discursive justification for the acquisition of islands in a way that doesn't cause political headaches in larger geographical land masses. So if we look at the annual report of the governor, 1905, to look more closely at Guam, we see here the location of Guam in the center of the Western Pacific, make it of great and recognized strategic value to the US, and it has neither present nor prospective economic value and should not then excite the interest of other than scientific and military men. So we see this thought, right? We're going from 1890s and we're gonna end up in 2021. So I call this, when we look at the situation in Guam, the macabre waltz, right? A dark room with two ghouls dancing together to truly bring life to the macabre waltz of Guam's complex situation today. When you take off the mass of the ghouls, you see the manipulation of our geographical location, holding arms with our lack of sovereignty as an unincorporated territory, which is our current political status. I believe that our current political status is a ground by which the United States can gamble with Guam for the pursuit of their national interests in what they newly deem the Indo-Pacific region. And thus it is in US interest for Guam to remain a colony. Whether it is the geopolitical game played over Chinese development in the South China Sea or the escalating crisis in either the Korean Peninsula or heating up with China in the way that they describe it, the vulnerability and strategic significance of Guam is often reduced where we become a rung on the escalation ladder, then a national territory to be protected. And I think that's a huge difference. So let's look at these two ghouls dancing together in this macabre waltz. The first is our endurance, geographical endurance. This is Vice Admiral Jonathan Greenert, who wrote, Guam is a hub, Guam has geography, and that will be enduring. It is now becoming very important to us again. Guam will always be strategically important because of its geography alone. So goal one, geography, strategic manipulation of our geographical location. Two, unincorporated territory. When Chamorros were pushing for citizenship, the Navy actually testified against it. And one thing they said in their testimony against giving Chamorro citizenship and civilian government was the geographical location of Guam in the midst of foreign territory with foreign commercial and colonizing interests to be considered, together with the racial problems of that locality, combined to provide a fertile field for international disputes. So that was the Navy's testimony opposing this Chamorro push for civilian government. So I, I hate to be the bearer of bad quotes, but that seems what I'm trying to do today, to set up the context of bringing all these quotes here, right? But here we can see it, we can see it clearly, this macabre waltz that I call it, Geography, unincorporated territory, holding hands together to create the most fertile field for control of Guam, right? We're American territory, which reduces the political difficulty, right? Of building and operating assets there, what Sasha Davis likes to call operational unilateralism. You don't need to ask permission. There is no mother may I in Guam, right? And that's a problem. Furthermore, as they say, Guam with its pro-military population and 7.7% unemployment is unlikely to offer local opposition, okay? And then lastly, I wanna you, bring you to this last line here. We can do what we want here and make huge investments without fear of being thrown out, right? So thus the macabre waltz, our geography and unincorporated territory works well, very close together. Now, the logic of retention as we see, because I'm gonna go into the more recent developments, 
Okay, that video actually did provide some context into how we were used further on in the 1900s. But Guam was initially used as a coaling station, right? But technical obsolescence, even if we don't use coal, does not equal political obsolescence. And I think this is the logic of retention for islands such as Guam. Even if some outdated technology is no longer in the military's best interest, that doesn't equate to letting go of their territories because Guam in their mind will probably remain strategically important, especially in this current geopolitical environment that they are uh, discussing. Thus, unfortunately, all Indo-Pacific geopolitical roads tend to lead to Guam and the geopolitical tectonic plates that shift in the region create various forms of earthquakes for the island. And I think that's very scary for the people of Guam. And it's something that we, the people of Guam and the CNMI need to pay close attention to these developments in the region, no matter what, okay? So here are some things that are currently occurring just to bring you to the present with my remaining time, okay? Uh, the Aegis Ashore deliberations, pretty much this top priority in the Indo-Pacific Command to create a 360 degree integrated air and missile defense system in the island. Okay, this is Admiral Philip Davidson, who before he retired, pretty much said it is the key piece of an Indo-PACCOM strategy for the containment of China, right? And they say, he said, when you look at the way the threat capability, threat capacity is manifesting from China in the future, whether it's ballistic missiles from the land or whether it's cruise missiles from air and maritime platforms, you're gonna need a complete clock a 360 degree coverage in order to help defend Guam. In the 2022 NDA passed by the House recently, um, this was also included, but it was pending a report on how they would, what would be the best air and missile defense system that's integrated, okay? So there, we can see this, right? Guam has not lost political obsolescence from Mayhan till now, right? There's also Malabar that just happened interesting, where the military is what they're calling the Quad, US, Japan, India, Australia, had their exercises in August, 2021. So just last month, it was high temple naval exercises, which was supposed to create what they call a testimony of synergy among the four quad countries. Furthermore, there was Forager 21, which was really a theater army, um, first core ability to deploy land power forces. But what I think is important is that Operation Forager 21, what many of us may not know is that Operation Forager was the name of the operation to re take Guam from the Japanese. So now from Operation Forger during World War II, what is the symbolism between Operation Forger in the 1940s during World War II and Operation Forger 21, right? Which, so, you know, there's some symbolism there. Um, in addition to this, there's a lot of continued money, right? Just this past week, we had a $122 million contract for Marine Corps firing range that was awarded. And our own uh, representative, our delegate in Congress called the recent military exercises in Guam, the few real opportunities this year to help Guam's economy. So this is very complex, yeah? Um, so I wanna end with two things. My presentation today, what it really tried to do is just track the history of geopolitical thought in Guam. What the other presenters will do is really, I think, talk about what Dr. Robert Underwood said, the military is a 12 foot giant in our house. He's bound to step on some of your children. And in many ways, we see this on an everyday level. So here's what I wanna leave you with. One warm Guahan weekend, my daughter Inina and I were playing outside in my backyard. It was around 5 p.m. and it was a beautiful day with the wind blowing and the hot sun preparing for its rest. Then as I pushed my daughter on the swing we bought her, a loud noise came overhead. 
and we saw a large black plane breaking the sound barrier and flying above us. My daughter immediately got scared and wanted me to carry her. Seeping past the piercing decibels of military planes taking off with the weight of munitions lies the Chamorro voice waiting to be heard. Beneath the curse of our lack of sovereignty and the manipulation of our geography, true genuine security for the Chamorro people is waiting. Truly, we in Guahan deserve a cartography in which we take the cart cartographic pens away from the Pentagon and map our own policies and paths. My daughter deserves a future where we can all she can hear is the sweet wind blowing in her face as she swings in her childhood backyard. So to that end, we cannot stop fighting for our right to self-determination, even in the face of the increasing strategic importance of the island in American strategic thought. To do any less feels too much like giving in to the self-fulfilling prophecy that we are just destiny's landfall. And let's not forget that the tip of the spear is always the bloodiest. Thank you. To kind of clarify really quickly, I'm coming from the CNMI side, um, born and raised on Saipan, so um, that kind of changes the perspective just slightly. But um, to give some background, in the mid-1970s, the CNMI um, negotiated a covenant uh, agreement that many of you are probably aware about, but it put us in a political union with the United States. And, and the kind of colloquial understanding of this relationship is that um, you know, we could maintain self-governance, maintain ownership over our lands as, as, as those of Northern Marianas descent, um, because there was from the beginning an acknowledgement that land was scarce and it held deep cultural significance to our people. Um, so when we returned, we received US citizenship, but we also agreed to kind of giving up, and I use, I don't use that term lightly, but giving up um, a portion of our lands for national defense purposes. And this includes the island of Farallon Mendoniza, which um, is, it um, is used for live fire training and bombing currently right now. It's only about 45 um, nautical miles away from Saipan. Um, portions of the island of Tinian uh, next to Saipan, about 10 minutes from Saipan, and a small lease area on the actual island of Saipan. So um, I kind of look at the CNMI in this overall broader discussion as the contingency islands, right? We're, we're always kind of talked about as the backup, and yet we comprise a really integral um, you know, portion of this overall buildup. Um, but I think that history is important because, you know, we maintain two separate governments, so we negotiate separately for land use, et cetera, you know, with the U.S. military. And the, the kind of problem up front that this creates is, is this false sense of segmentation in military planning, which is something we see all the time, especially um, with the DOD's release of its multiple environmental impact statements. Um, and this is, this is something that's been critiqued now for years uh, by community members, both on Saipan and Guahan, that you can't break up military planning into these multiple projects without assessing their overall, you know, cumulative impacts throughout the entire archipelago, including the water and the air, right? Um, we're not just talking about land. And so it, it's also interesting because there's this weird paradox here where, you know, while the military presents all of these different segmented projects seemingly disconnected, they simultaneously characterize the Marianas as this homogenous strategic location, as Dr. Cooper was mentioning, right, for its training and testing. Um, because in the words of the DOD, it's a quote, US territory, it provides urban training environments, expansive airspace, expansive surface and subsurface sea space and the military is able to use live ordnance in authorized training spaces, right? So there's a couple of things I'll just kind of point out in the context of what the military calls this Mariana Islands training and testing study area, um, which is about the size of India. It's just under a million square nautical miles. So that gives you a sense of how large it is. 
Um, and one of the things that's always kind of struck me living on Saipan and has been an important part of my own research is this notion of realism or realistic environments. So you'll see them talk about the Marianas as realistic environments a lot, the Navy, um, as the Navy calls it. And, um, and it's the formulation of the islands as these realistic training spaces that simultaneously kind of stamp out the liveness of the area of what is alive, you know, about the place, about the people and the, the non-human environment that spans the lands and the sea throughout the region. Um, and so, you know, sometimes, and you might see in a training video like the one we watched, that the mention of indigenous people, but were usually talked about um, as being important um, insofar as we're seen as sharing the space, they often say that we share the space with the military or in the context of cultural heritage, for example, like artifacts. Um, the, the second thing that I want to kind of bring up is the notion of readiness, and I'm sure we'll be able to discuss this more during, if we have some time for Q&A, but, and, and even the overarching kind of theme of buildup that began during the Obama administration as part of the Pacific pivot but over the years, the question really in, in the CNMI and my community has become like, what are we, what are we readying ourselves for? What are we building up to? You know, where is all of this going? Um, from the perspective of the Marianas, there often seems really to be no end in sight when it comes to readiness because this um, perceived conflict with China and other adversaries like North Korea, as, as Dr. Cooper also mentioned, we all have our kind of um, stories about North Korea, you know, the stories that we hear when they say that they're going to bomb. Um, it provides this fuel for endless militarization in the region. And so, you know, does the military need to prepare? You know, they, they, they can prepare. Yeah, sure. But how do we fit into that kind of broader picture of readiness as a, a society that continues to bear the brunt of the, the social and economic um, costs of this preparation with little knowledge of, of really what's happening, especially from the perspective of those living in the, the continental US. Um, and then lastly, another really important intersection and I think experience with militarism in terms of its planetary scale is of course the way it, it merges with climate change um, in the Marianas. And you know, we're all, especially in, in a forum like this, we're all pretty much aware that we simply can't talk about climate change without talking about militarization, um, in part because we know the DOD is one of the biggest polluters on planet Earth, right? But, but also uh, from the perspective of, of the CNMI, it's that militarism is really coinciding with a lot of devastating natural disasters that our community has been dealing with over the last five years. And so in particular, two super typhoons, including um, Typhoon U2, which had a, a which, uh, which was a record-breaking typhoon um, that we're quite literally still recovering from um, on the islands. But the concern in this regard um, is the increasing strength of these super typhoons due to climate change and the further dependence that this entrenches between us and the military for aid, you know, um, for example. And it really continues to put us in this vulnerable position and stri strips us of um, further political bargaining power for relying so heavily on this on this aid. Um, and funding to get out of these disasters. Um, and, you know, one of the points of this kind of analysis is really to underscore the fact that climate change is viewed by the military as what's called a threat multiplier. So the idea that climate change exacerbates other security problems like food scarcity, water scarcity, for example, um, but it doesn't acknowledge its role in producing that actual problem. And instead, 
one of the tactics, at least in our community, that's so often employed when the Navy comes out is that it shifts the attention onto the, like the scientific research that's being done, right? And all of the technologies that it employs in the MIT study area. So, so there's this idea that the MIT serves as this training and testing site, plus this bonus because it's uh, also a study area for marine mammal research, for example, as you saw in the video. And, and so, for example, the Navy's tagline is defending freedom, protecting the environment. Um, so just to, to close before I talk, I mean, just to, to close um, before I talk just briefly about some of the kind of activism and work that's happening in the CNMI um, <coughs> by the group that I'm really humbled to chair and represent, which is our Commonwealth 670, as Madison mentioned, I just want to share that, um, you know, from the Marianas, readiness it can't simply come at the expense of indigenous livelihoods as it's always been right we're constantly being forced to choose between national security and the preservation and of our own people and our own ways of life and that's not that's not a choice right um readiness is defined by by the dod as the ability of individual units in the armed forces to execute their assigned missions promptly and competently um, but this shouldn't be, you know, include using Oceania as the sacrificial lamb to be offered at the whims of the military industrial complex. The, the rhetoric on island and daily conversations often leans to one kind of angle when you talk about China, and that really is fear, right? If the U.S. leaves, what will happen? China will come in and completely overtake us. People say this sometimes, right? And then we'll really be in trouble. Um, and that says a lot about the way that the, the media constructs China as this impending threat and so much about the way that we're taught to understand what China is doing in the region. And of course, this distracts us from seeing the immediacy of what's happening like right in front of our faces with the destruction of our islands that's happening right now, all the all of the different training. Yeah. So I just want to close by talking about the, the, the advocacy work um, of, of our Commonwealth. Um, which is a group of, um, it's an indigenous and women-led uh, group in the CNMI that's situated on Saipan. And we really tried to build on a lot of the great work that other advocates that have come before us in our own communities and abroad um, to really try to speak up and talk about these consequences because it's still really hard, you know, to talk about um, these issues in our, in, our, in our own communities, right? So um, really trying to, to, to push solidarity uh, across Oceania, right, in Okinawa, in Hawaii, working with Chamorros in the diaspora, legislature, legislators in Guahan, <coughs> and trying to team up with other more national organizations like OBRAC, Overseas Space Realignment and Closure Coalition, and World Beyond War, um, to really get the word out that our islands aren't dispensable in this buildup and that we really have a, a say as the rightful owners of, the, of this place, right? Um, <coughs> One of the things that I'm really, um, I think a Madison might have put the, um, we have a petition going around as well that's based off of President Biden's uh, recent executive orders, but the group has also tried to introduce resolutions in the CNMI government. Um, one of them was introduced by a, a, a representative, Sheila Bout, and it really tried to, um, it aimed to protect the CNMI from any further harmful military activities. We, there was some pushback that we also received a lot of community support and many in the CNMI actually came out to testify about the fear of continuing these military plans with seemingly no end in sight um, or little oversight over the irreparable damage to our cultural and natural resources. Um, 
And the group is also working with Asia Pacific Forum on, uh, Forum on Women Law and Development to train women in our community to connect militarism to self-determination. Um, again, all of these really important conversations that are happening. There's a large resistance movement and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of that um, alongside these other panelists here. And with that, I'll just close. Thank you so much to Dr. Cooper and Dr. Ariola, Chamorro scholars and activists resisting US militarization of their lands in Guam and the Northern Marianas. You can find the webinar on Code Pink's YouTube. And to our listeners, you can find and support our Commonwealth 67 and its petition to Biden to protect the Marianas from unchecked US military expansion. Go to change.org and find Joseph R. Biden, protect the Marianas from unchecked military expansion. You are listening to Code Pink Radio coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York City. We will be back after this break with writer, activist, and founding editor of newsclip.in, Prabir Perkarasta. sister, Sinta Kaipat. Both have been significant demilitarization activists on Saipan in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands and have spent time as young children on Pagan, another island that the military currently wants to use for live fire training and that indigenous Chamorro activists have been actively resisting. Welcome back. I am Madison Tang, coordinator of the China is Not Our Enemy campaign at Code Pink Women for Peace. You are listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, DC. Now on to our second segment of the show with founder and editor-in-chief of newsclick.in, 
Javier Percayasta, and Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans, offering us a view from India on the Quad Alliance, the AUKUS Alliance, and India's role in the U.S.'s war on China. All right, welcome to another episode of China is Not Our Enemy. And um, I really want to thank Madison. Uh, thank you for co-coordinating this campaign so amazingly. It's it's a lot. It's uh, multi-headed. <laughs> and I want to also thank our sponsors. Our, um, our campaign is about growing a big tent that to end this aggression, it's going to take all of us. And we really appreciate our amazing coalition. And today, uh, some of them are co-sponsoring this conversation, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament UK, um, it's um, partners in the International Peace Movement's resistance against the AUKUS Alliance, Show Up America, the People's Forum New York City, and No Cold War Britain. Um, I'm super excited to be today with the amazing Prabir Perkai Yashka. Water. <laughs> Tongue twister. I agree. And my mouth was right, so it wouldn't even move. <laughs> the, he, he's the founding editor of NewsClick India. He's an engineer and a science and free software activist. He's a prolific speaker and writer globally and was with Code Pink on our Gaza Freedom March in 2009. He's the author, along with Vijay Prashad of Enron Blowout, Corporate Capitalism, and the Theft of the Global Commons. Prabir, welcome and thank you so much for staying up late and joining us from India. Pleasure so let's to be start. With Pleasure to be with oh, Thank you, thank you. Um, I want to start with you letting us know what it looks like from India, as um, the US just lost another two wars and now it's aggressing on China. Um, and, you know, the United States citizens know about as little as India as they do about China. What, it, what does this look like from where you sit? Well, I think there's one thing which of course affects directly in this particular case, the Indian people, that we have been having border tensions with China. This is a long unresolved border issue, stepping back really uh, two colonial times when the borders were not demarcated. And of course, that has spilled over as it happens in various countries into, uh, what shall we say, tensions, sometimes flashes into even violence. We had a 1962 war on the border. So that sort of complicates India's earlier attempts to build what would be called strategic autonomy, by which India did look after its interest independent of joining any bloc. Now, of course, there is a much longer history to non-aligned movement, anti-colonial struggles, decolonization of the world, of which non-alignment was a part. But India kept out of alignments and built its own geostrategic autonomy. Right now, with the border tensions with China, it seems to have gone whole hog with the United States now. And that is cause for concern because that's not in India's interest not in the interest of the Indian people. So, um, uh, you know, the Indian people, the Chinese people, um, it's, a, it's a big, uh, it's, 
it's hard to say, right? Who are the Indian people? Who are the Chinese people? Um, but, uh, you know, India is right there in the middle of, uh, of what, what is said to be the, the century of Asia. Um, you're, um, you're, you're just kind of in the center of world politics. There's China, there's Kashmir, there's Pakistan and Burma. And, you know, and then it's, it's joined this quad. <laughs> so um, where do you see, you know, is, is, is being part of the quad, um, uh, India's st strategy, is it U.S. pressure? Is, where do you see um, India here? See, the current government that we have, the Modi government, is of course, uh, has a longer lineage in the sense it comes from uh, the RSS, which wanted a rightward shift, post-independence itself, it wanted to be an ally of the Western powers against Russia and China, what it called as a sort of socialism was its enemy, that's how it saw itself, and of course wanted a Christian-Jewish-Hindu alliance against Muslims and communists. That is a very simple or a simplistic political understanding it seemed to have. Unfortunately, 50, 60 years down the line, that trend of thinking still persists. But initially, even when the Modi government came into power, it tried to have a relationship with the United States and the Western powers, but also tried to build some relationship with China and Russia, which now in the last two, three years seems to have collapsed completely. And it seems to be going much closer to the United States. Of course, there is also an internal set of issues which are here. As you know, the Indian uh, government has been, as you said, Kashmir, as well as internal violence against minorities, the kind of politics that we see, divisive politics, that of course, Facebook very actively helps with uh, through its algorithms or otherwise. So all of this is also causing internal problems inside the country, weakening us in some sense, but also that going whole hog, whole hog with the United States, particularly at a time when the US has just lost the Afghanistan war with, after 20 years of occupation, getting out of Iraq, and also losing its, uh, shall we say, the larger Eurasian uh, landmass for itself. You have Western Europe, you have the NATO, and then you have the so-called pivot to Asia or Indo-Pacific. The Eurasian landmass is much bigger than the Pacific Ocean, and it should be about people, not about oceans. So I think that this is the wrong time. If you wanted to ally with the United States, this perhaps is the wrong century, if not the wrong time. Uh, yes, totally agree. And, and also just the different, the people in India. Um, I don't know if, you know, our listeners know that, but in recently, two to 400 million people did actions on the same day in India. I mean, a historic day that few global writers wrote about. And you took on um, raising up the farmer strike. Uh, your coverage got you in a little bit of hot water. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, the government doesn't like critical uh, analysis of what it is doing or covering movements which are springing up in the country. So both these things are not something the ruling government wants. 
Of course, most ruling governments do not want criticism of itself. But the way this government has attacked, uh, particularly the digital platforms, which have resisted uh, the kind of massaging of the message, shall we say, the government has been trying. So that has actually led the government to take various measures. Digital platforms are definitely under attack because they seem to be more recalcitrant, more disobedient of the government than others, which have much bigger financial stakes. So easier to co-opt. So I think that is a reason why Newsweek has also come under various investigations as they are called. But other platforms, other journalists have faced charges of sedition for doing their everyday task of uh, journalistic uh, work. So I think we are seeing this, but at the moment we still have the courts functioning, some protection of the courts, and let's hope you know the Indian people will slowly uh, come out in support of the media, and the courts will hold hold the lines. As as of now, they seem to be at least thinking that free press, free media, journalistic endeavors should not be silent. So let's see where it goes. But yes, struggles on the on that front too. Well, do you think that that is an influence that comes from this relationship with the U.S.? We're very used to not getting our news and and journalists being shut down and jailed. Um, ours is really severe. Um, <laughs> with Julian Assange and Ed Snowden and Chelsea Manning and so many um, who uh, try to get the word out and, and, and get crushed. Um, is, do you think that this attack on journalism has anything to do with the relationship with the United States? Um, uh, you know, because what you're saying about the landmass and not only that, the um, number of people, isn't, isn't that something like Four billion people, or three and a half billion people, in that region. Um, well, if you take Asia, of course, it is very large. India and China alone will make it uh, roughly about two point eight billion or so. So, of course, Asia is, in fact, the Eurasia is four fifth of the population of the world. Oh wow! Perhaps you know. So, and uh, if you add Africa, which is really shares corridors linked to Asia and you really take it to most of the world's population. I wouldn't count Australia as a full-fledged continent, at least only the Americas out of it. So I think there is this issue of, uh, you know, uh, when you talk about the Eurasia as a landmass to Asia, what we are talking about is change of how the world has been looked at for the last, say, from the 16th, 17th century onwards which saw the rise of maritime empires, unfortunately, colonial plunder, slavery, genocide, all the things we can think of, which today still plague us in different forms. But the power really shifted to maritime colonial powers. So the United States, the European powers, West European powers were really uh, essentially maritime powers. And that is where I think this NATO being not Atlantic alliance, and now we talk of Indo-Pacific. I think the focus is really force projection using your Navy. And of course, the aircraft carriers are really the fortresses on the little islands on the move, so to say. So I think this is the focus of the previous century, the 20th century. 
I think the 21st century is going to come back for what you were saying also, the focus on the people. And therefore, we are really looking at Eurasia. You are looking at the Americas as what we should be looking for, looking at Africa. And how do the people in these places, how do we really let that, those relationships develop and not big power projections and trying to do what is called a rule-based order where three G3, G5, G7 countries are going to decide what is called the international rules of the game. And I think that is the significant change we are seeing. A can we have a cooperative world order emerge instead of Indo-Pacific and NATO? And I think that is the significance when you talk about what is happening and where is India going. If India thinks with its 1.2 billion people, it's going to go to Indo-Pacific, I think they're making a huge mistake. Wow, well, that's so hopeful. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I love that. And, um, you know, a lot of the work with China is not our enemy is also with the indigenous peoples in um, the Pacific Islands. Um, so I like the idea of having it, you know, the cooperative coming from the bottom. And, you know, that just brings me to the, um, we've spoken about this before, but the, um, the, the term that Biden uses, the rules-based order. And, um, you know, while breaking the rules all the time, how, you know, how do we undermine, obviously, you know, like Indo-Pacific, which is a, a recent term, you know, made by the, uh, I, I think it was the uh, Japanese officials and the Trump administration. Um, how, you know, how, what are other, what are ways like taking on the fact that it's not only not a rules-based order, but murdering uh, mafias? Um, how, you know, how can we switch that um, around in our activism? You know, it's an interesting issue that when the United States about, talks about a rule-based order or the ex-colonial powers with United States talks about a rule-based order, they're not talking of the United Nations of the Security Council, which is or even about international law. All these three things are not on the table. So when you talk about an international rule-based order, the question is who makes the rules? And it's very clear, it's a G7, it's the G3. And all of these, if you look at it, are essentially ex-colonial powers. Okay. And some of them are, of course, settler colonial powers. So when you talk about, for instance, US, UK, Australia coming together, now what unites United Kingdom has been power, of course, still has nuclear weapons and so on, but is really long past its prime. What has it got to do with Southeast Asia? So what is it doing coming into this? So it is to give the fig leaf that there, are, there is a rule-based order and a few countries set the rules. And the so-called revisionist powers are the ones who do not accept these rules. So the question that really comes in, what is the meaning of rules when you, as you have talked about, the mafias? Well, let's put it this way. The United States has seven to 800 bases in the world, military bases in the world. The only country which has this number of bases. 
Russia, which it thinks is a bad one, has 10. China has one. Okay. Now, this is the contrast. When you talk about the South China Sea, the freedom of navigation, you are talking about a corridor which is supposed to be close to the Chinese sea coast. You want to dominate that, talking about the freedom of navigation. And they are very clear, the 2018, I think, document, strategic document about China says we have a problem. We are not able to dominate the Chinese coastline or the first island chain. We are not able to dominate that. Outside that, we have dominance, but not inside that. We need that too. Now, those kind of uh, discussions that they're having, which are open. Now, how does it square in with the so-called rule-based international order and this freedom of navigation as India discovered to its cost, supporting its South China Sea? The US Navy also did this freedom of navigation in Indian, what India calls its territorial waters or it calls its you know, uh, economic zones through which if you pass, you need to take permission. So all of these actually are interpretations US has over all these issues, which it says it decides what is the international rules. It's very clear. It doesn't say international law, by the way. And I think that's an interesting distinction just making. It's not talking about international law, but about international rule-based order. And I think that distinction is very important. Thank you. Um, some good terms in there. Um, so India and Biden's quadrilateral, you know, the quad alliance with US, Japan, Australia, and India. You wrote an excellent article on India's role in the quad and AUKUS alliance. Can you talk about the military components to the quad alliance? The quad alliance was initially a security dialogue. But recently, both the United States and India has been talking about that this is not a India, it's not a Indo-Pacific equivalent of the NATO. We are not a military alliance. We are going to do all the soft stuff, economy, vaccines and other stuff. But the military part of it, they sort of be walking back from. And it's also interesting that once you have the AUK US, Australia being brought into this, and let's leave out the poor United Kingdom, which gives them a fig leaf to say these three countries. It's really inducting Australia as a frontline state in its contention over really Southeast Asia. Now, Southeast Asia is one of the most fast developing places in the world. They have a cooperative economy they are building with trade. They have trading partnerships with Japan as well as with China as well as the, with South Korea. So they see themselves as really the next growth zone in the world, which they seem to be doing as well. So I think inducting Australia in is to counterbalance, provide at least a base of operations if military target is what they have, as you said, China being the, their target. So Australia provides a military uh, staging post near Southeast Asia, and that seems to be Australia's attraction. Why Australia has gone with this is not clear, because Australia's economic interests lie with Southeast Asia and East Asia. It's a supplier of raw materials, and it needs industrial goods, and obvious, it complements the Chinese economy well. So that has been where this has been selling stuff. 
so it seems that it is willing to pay money to united states to buy nuclear submarines which it didn't seem to want because it didn't take the submarines from france earlier it said we want diesel submarines nuclear submarines are force projection why they do they want it for defensive purposes is not clear at all but they'll get it 20 years later it seems that they're offering bases in australia for the united states navy and air force this is what the foreign policy uh, magazine also said that this is the informal understanding why australia is willing to pay money to be a frontline state in the battle uss battle against china is not clear to me and i think is not clear to most of the chinese uh, australian people too Thank you to our guest Prabir Prakasta and thank you for tuning in to Code Pink Radio this week with the China is not our enemy campaign. To take action with the China is not our enemy campaign this coming week to help prevent more disastrous US wars abroad, tell representative Elaine Luria, US military interventions don't make the world safer, they endanger us all. Go to www.codepink.org/luria. That's www.codepink .org/luria Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington DC. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlyle group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say cold war. We say cold pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say cold war. We say cold pink. Cold pink for freedom. Cold pink for peace. Cold pink to hunger. Was not Iraq, but Iran. They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say cold terror, we say cold pink. They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say cold terror, we say cold pink. Cold pink for freedom, cold pink for peace, cold pink to hunger. Tell us. Our-